Well, I want to just to thank you so much for your generosity. We received an offering here probably about three or four weeks ago for Turkey. Remember the great earthquake there? And uh, this is above and beyond your giving, and you gave over $9,000 to help. Uh, yeah, that's great. Thank you. And what's exciting is we actually have a missionary that's in Turkey, and they have been planting churches there. And so they're right on the ground level, working and ministering in the name of Jesus. And so we've given them the resources to actually come with water, blankets, you know, all the things people need in a moment of crisis. So they're serving in Jesus' name. So we're, we're partnering with the church there in Turkey, helping serve uh, the needs of people. I'm gonna have you turn in your Bible today to the book of Jeremiah, chapter 30. We're gonna stand as we go to the Lord in prayer, but we're gonna be speaking from and looking at and uh, discovering together this beautiful message from Jeremiah, chapter 30. Father, we thank you today for your amazing grace and goodness. We thank you for your love. And Father, I thank you what you're doing uh, in our lives. I thank you for last week, the way your spirit came in a beautiful way as we talked about the spirit of love and how your spirit came and touched our hearts, oh God. And I pray that that river of grace and love would continue to deepen and flow in our lives. And even today, as we look at this message where you're gonna pour forth uh, words of hope, words of reassurance, words to strengthen us, words that uh, will bring uh, encouragement after maybe a time in our, or a season in our life where we feel like our world is falling apart. You have something you wanna say to us. And Lord, give us a heart to hear what your voice is trying to say into our specific situation. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name and God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Many of us are acquainted with uh, John Newton. As a matter of fact, John Newton is famous for one of the greatest hymns of all times in the church, Amazing Grace. But what many of us may not know is his story. See, John was born son of a sea captain in London in 1725. And when he was about six or seven years old, he lost his mother. She was a very fervent Christian. And before she died, she prayed this amazing prayer. She asked God to make himself known to her son and that he would one day become a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Beautiful prayer. But as a young person, now his father remarried, but he continued to go out to sea. John, at 11 years old, went out to sea with his father. How many know kind of a rough life out there? He was uh, brought into the Royal Navy and eventually started working for a slave trader. So, I mean, this, this is a kind of a corrupt environment. And John got so far away from anything to do with Christianity. He was choosing a totally different path. And then in March of 1748, this is like he's 23 years old, he had an experience that forever changed his life. And he wrote in his journal, among the few books we had on board the ship was Stanhope's Thomas Kempis, which is really a book about the imitation of the life of Jesus. You know, he had nothing else to do. He had read it before. You know, he kind of treated it like a romance, or some sort of a story. It had no impact on him before. He said, I carefully took it up, as I had often done, to pass away time, but I had still read it with the same indifference, as if it was unapplicable to my life in any manner. However, while I was reading, an involuntary suggestion arose in my mind, 
What if these things are true? He went to that bed that night, but was awakened by a fierce Atlantic storm. Within a few minutes, the ship, which was really a wreck anyways, and was filling up with water. They were in danger of sinking. Working frantically, the crew finally plugged the leaks, and in his exhaustion, Newton heard himself say to the captain, if this will not do, the Lord have mercy on us. He was instantly taken aback by his own words. This was the first time he had even expressed anything to do with God and expressed the desire for God's mercy. And, went, and then the thought went through his mind, what mercy can there be for me, such a vile sinner? The next day, March 21st, the storm continued. Newton was summoned to the helm where he had time to reflect. He sadly concluded that there had probably never been a greater sinner, more wicked, and his sins too great and too many to be forgiven. And yet his journal records deliverance from the storm and spiritual deliverance came as well. He breathed his first weak prayer in years. And as he later recalled it, this was the hour he first believed. Now, you know the beautiful hymn, you know, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind. Spiritually, I was blinded, but now I see. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful song? But it was written by a man who had this amazing experience with God. How many realize that God will and does address sin in our lives as an individual? He'll do that. But he will also do that collectively as a society. God will judge nations for their sins. We've been looking at this uh, process, especially with the nation of Israel, which was really a people that knew better, knew God, knew his commands, but had rebelled, turned their back on God, and had embraced the cultures around them and embraced these false gods, these idols. And then God began disciplining them. He kept speaking to them over centuries to repent, to turn back to him, and warned them that if they had not, because they had been in a covenant relationship with him, he'd bring them into exile. And God was now in the process of doing that. As a matter of fact, he had already brought some of them into captivity in the city of Babylon, under the Babylonian Empire. Now things were getting even far worse. We've read through and looked at 29, cha 29 chapters. And you know what? They just kept rebelling against God till finally God said, I've had enough of it. And he allowed the final time to come. And when you read the book of Lamentations, which is probably one of the most despairing books in the Bible, because what Jeremiah is doing is lamenting or weeping over the destruction of the city of Jerusalem and how bad it got. There was famine. They were, they were so, uh, there, was, there, there was so many problems. Not only were they encircled and they were under siege, but they were short of food. They began eating each other. It was just a terrible situation to be living through. Finally, the city collapsed, and the remainder of the leaders were taken into captivity. Uh, despair, hopelessness, many times accompany discipline in our lives. Do you know it's designed to bring us to the end of ourselves? And it's designed to cause us to look up. Even as uh, John Newton was at the end of himself and looked up, God will allow things to come into our lives if we are not in the right place so that you and I will come to the end of ourselves. So we'll look up.
Robert Davidson, an Old Testament scholar, explains the reality by taking the example of Jeremiah's message. And he said, in Jeremiah's day, the people of Judah had to be led to the point where they were stripped of all human resources before they were prepared to turn to the healing and renewing power which God alone could give. It is an experience that has been deeply echoed across the centuries when people at the end of their tether totally despairing, have found God and found healing and new life. And so here in this dark hour, in the moment of their greatest pain, the city of Jerusalem totally devastated, survivors enslaved, it was in that hour that God breathed a word of hope. I love this. Can I just say this? Many times in our darkest moment, God comes to us. God comes to us with a word. And I want to just tell you how powerful this is. Because everything you and I see is temporary. But the only thing that is eternal, that is enduring, that you can count on, that is long-lasting, is the word of God. It says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word abides forever. Isn't that beautiful? God's word is an enduring word. So if God speaks his word, a word of promise, a word of hope into our lives, you and I can stand on it. Now you can just imagine, it was a word that God breathed. It was a word of beauty in a season of ashes. It's designed to help people look past the present sorrow to a new day of joy because of the promises of God. And here we have this word of restoration being preached by Jeremiah. Actually, scholars just just talk about the chapters 30, 31, 32, 33, these four chapters as the book of comfort or the book of consolation. It begins a message of what God is about to accomplish through the discipline for their disobedience and defiance, which now leads people to a place of humility and repentance. Folks, I'm gonna just give you the good news. God is doing something special in our hour. He's He's bringing us. We can see the deterioration and the darkness of our culture. But in the midst of this brokenness, I see little wellsprings of hope. The Spirit of God is being poured out. We're seeing it in a university campus in Kentucky. Isn't that beautiful? God is doing it in other campuses. God is beginning a stirring in our land. But it's coming and it's designed to bring us to a place where we recognize our own brokenness, our own lack and need for God. It's a, it's a, it's, I believe this is what genuine re- revival is. It begins with a confession of our own sin. In Jeremiah 30, we discover three elements to the restoration that's going to take place in the days ahead. Though the future never looks so bleak, uh, God's words presents a brighter picture for tomorrow. God's word of promise always will help us find beauty in a, in a season of ashes in our lives. Now, we'll look at these three elements. The first one is that God simply promises it. Do you know words are only as powerful and valid as the person speaking them? How many know that's true? You know, some people, when they say something, you go, I'm not going to believe a word they're saying. They have no credibility. Ever met people like that? Now, that person has no credibility. You know, I've met people, you go, everything they say, you don't know what to believe. You don't know how much is true and how much is a lie. Anybody experience people like that? But here's the good news. God is truth. When God says something... It's truthful, and not only that, God has the ability to make a promise and keep it. That's the part I like. He's got that capacity to do that. With God, what he says 
he can do. His promises are powerful and they bring hope in times of sorrow and despair. Consider that God's word is, as I said, eternal in nature. We need to remember that the words of promise did not come out of a vacuum. These people had grievously sinned against God. God was disciplining them in their rebellion and now they were awakening to the reality of their sin, okay? So here's the verses. We're gonna begin, verse one. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. These are God's words. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, write in a book all the words I've spoken to you. Well, that's a good thing to do. How many know we have a tendency to forget things? Write these things down, Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will bring my people Israel and Judah back from captivity and restore them to the land I gave their ancestors to possess, says the Lord. A new thing's about to happen that's gonna change the whole trajectory of the despair that people were living in. They were being told in the last chapter to make the best of a bad situation. They, they were told to bloom where they were planted. God said, you're gonna stay in Babylon for 70 years and then I'm gonna bring you back to the land. God is making a promise. He said, yes, there is a consequence to sin. How many know there always is a consequence to sin? There is. We need to understand that. You know, a lot of times as Christians, we go, oh, it's no big thing. I'll just ask God to forgive me. Yeah, I know, but if you sin, there's, you know, there's negative ramifications as a result of that. Yes, God is a forgiving God. But let's not fool around. There are consequences. Let's do the right thing. You can avoid a lot of heartache and pain in your life if you're doing the right stuff. You know, but now they're gonna get a message that's gonna sustain them. This is true for us in the place where we feel trapped without hope. Sometimes we feel like things will never change, you know? What sustains us is a word from God, a word of promise. In moments when we feel weak, tested, and tempted, we need to remind ourselves that we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Do you know what's gonna sustain you in this life? It's not material things. And you know, I think you have to get older to really appreciate that. You know, things wear out. They're not that exciting anymore. You know what I mean? Eventually, you get bored by all the things of this world. As a matter of fact, it's so tragic when you think about it. So many people work so hard to get what they've got, and then they have to give it all up anyways. And it all wears out, or they have to give it away. Or they got to downsize. We can just keep talking about all those things. Just think we have the wrong priorities. But here's what I'm going to tell you today. If you and I make God's word the most single most important thing in your life, you will never be disappointed. It'll sustain you. It'll strengthen you. It'll encourage you. It'll inspire you. It'll give you significance. It'll provide meaning. It'll give you understanding. It'll fill you with wisdom. It'll give you knowledge. It'll help you in your relationships. There's so many wonderful things about God's word. Jeremiah had been declaring the reason why the people were exiled, but what's more important is to hear the heart of God and his desire to restore the people's fortunes. You know, God doesn't enjoy disciplining. No parent enjoys disciplining their child, but they do it because they love their child. What we do enjoy doing is blessing our kids. Isn't that true? And that's the way God is. He wants to bless. A new future now is gonna become theirs. He says, the days are coming when God will restore. I love what Robert Davidson says regarding the rationale for a message that was written down. It says here, such a writing down may have been intended to ensure that the message of hope would be preserved for those who in the desperate crisis of national tragedy needed to hear it over and over again. How many, we need to hear things over and over again. And when it's written down, you can go back to it and go, oh yeah, it's right there, okay? 
Aren't you glad God has a word that's written down so you can keep going back to and going, oh, look at this. And you know, sometimes I've read these passages over and over again, but I'm at a new place in my life and I read them and I go, I never saw that before. Because it's speaking to me in a way that I'd never heard it before because I'm in a different place in my spiritual journey. How often the written word in the Bible has done just that when people have been tempted to despair, a word of hope. And maybe you're here today. You need to hear God's voice. You need a word of hope today to sustain you in your current hour of darkness or difficulty or maybe just plain drudgery. Sometimes people get bored. They just go, it's the same old, same old, same old. Listen, God has something coming. It's not gonna be the same old. Something's coming. Something's on the horizon. And you need to have the word of God laying open your heart to that promise. Look to God's forgiving nature. Look to his compassion. Look to his loving nature. I think we've all had moments in our lives where we feel that all we're doing is putting one foot in front of another. Have anybody felt that way? I've been there before. You just feel like you're going through the motions. I want you to know something. Just hang in there a little longer. Something is about to happen. God has a better day ahead of the hour in which you're living through this testing and trial in your life. This is a message of hope out of despair. This is not a superficial word. You know, so often in life, you know, people want to, a lot of times we're uncomfortable with people and their difficulties, so we'll say to them, well, things will get better. But we can't make that promise, right? No, we can't. But a lot of times we do that because we feel uncomfortable. But when God says things are going to get better, then you and I can have an assurance they will get better because he knows the future. And we can have confidence in that. And I love what Walter Brueggemann says along this line of the significance of God making this promise. He says, in making such a theological affirmation that brusquely overrides historical circumstances, we are not yet at the wonder of these promissory texts. I'll explain what he these fancy words in a minute. Nor is the voice, speech, or promise simply human hope or wishful thinking, because that's usually what we give people, wishful thinking. We want to give people human hope. The anticipation that somehow things will get better. We all want to tell people that, but we can't make that confident assertion that it will get better. Rather, this speech on the lips of the prophet is God's self-announcement, God's self-resolve to which God's own self is committed in the face of resistant circumstances. That is, God has pledged to work and newness precisely where there's no evidence of such newness on the horizon. It's a promise to which Israel clings to because of the promise maker. These chapters enunciate a hope rooted in God's own resolve and fidelity, which is his faithfulness. A hope addressed towards a people on the brink of despair. A hope issued in the face of and against the reality of the imperial prowess in Babylon after the utter failure of Judah. So what is he basically saying to us, Brueggemann? He's saying, listen, what God is saying is in light of what seems impossible to humanity. I mean, think about it. Here's a world empire, a superpower. No other nation can rival Babylon. And what is God saying? I'm going to take them down. And you know, here's little Judah who's been taken into captivity. And God says, because of your sin, I'm going to raise you back up and put you back in your land. When he made that promise, that seemed utterly ludicrous. But I'll tell you something. When God says it, it's as good as done. 
Because God's capable of keeping his promises. Now, why is that important to us? Because what I'm trying to get across to us is when you and I are in our darkest moments, all we can feel is gloom, despair, we're distraught, there's hopelessness and helplessness in our lives. We just feel like nothing's gonna change. I've been here so long, what's gonna be different? And then all of a sudden, God, in our hour of greatest need, speaks a word of hope into our situation. And we need to hang on to that word. And as you hang on to it, you know, you gotta be little preachers. You gotta preach to your soul, you know? You know, why are you so disquieted, oh my soul? Yet hope in God. If God says it, it's gonna happen. And I'm standing on the reality of what God promises. And time can go by. Listen, God spoke to Abraham and said, you're gonna have a son. And 25 years went by, but the day came when he had a boy named Isaac, which was joy and laughter. God fulfilled what he had promised. We have a little problem with God's timetable sometimes. And we are very impatient and frustrated that it doesn't happen sooner, right? Do you know pain has a way of capturing us? How many say that's true? How many know pain gets your attention? Anybody know that? Pain will get your attention. You know, a lot of times God's trying to say something in our lives, but we're just ignoring him. We're, we're, we're way too busy. We got our own agenda. God goes, no, no, I'm trying to talk to you. I'm trying to get your attention. Well, if you keep ignoring him, I guarantee you God is gonna get in your space. I tell you, John Newton, he was running from God. He was out at sea. He was as far away from God as you can be. He'd been running a long time. But you know what? God put him on an old leaky boat. And that big storm came up. Sounds like Jonah, right? Of course, they didn't throw him overboard. But I'll tell you what. He became a changed man in that storm. It changed the whole course of his life. He became that minister his mother had prayed for. Jeremiah 30 verse uh, well, 4 says, These are the words the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. This is what the Lord says. Cries of fear are heard, terror, not peace. Ask and see. Can a man bear children? No. Then why do I see every strong man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor, every face turned deathly pale? How awful that day will be. No other will be like it. It will be a time of trouble for Jacob, but he will be saved out of it. So what is he saying here? Notice that he said he would be saved out of it. So God is allowing them to experience the consequences of their rebellion. But here we see the despair that Judah had found herself in, the southern kingdom. Her military was frozen with panic, fear, and terror. They were described as women in labor pains, but yet they were unable to deliver. They couldn't do anything about their situation. Walter Brueggemann says the graphic portrayal of verses 30, chapter 30, verses 5 to 7a, leads us to be surprised by the dramatic conclusion in 7b, which says, yet, nevertheless, what is he saying? He will be saved out of it. Now, notice he didn't say he'll be saved from it. You see, a lot of us, we want to be saved from all our, you know, we want to be saved from all trouble. But sometimes God goes, no, I'm going to save you even in the midst of your trouble. And especially when you and I have rebelled against God, we're going to have trouble because that's the nature of sin. But, you know, sometimes God even allows trouble to come into our lives and we haven't sinned. 
Sometimes we're innocent. Sometimes we need to be vindicated. So this isn't just about when we've done the wrong thing. Sometimes we're doing the right stuff and we're getting into trouble. And God is still able to save us out of trouble. Goes on to say here, there's nothing in the scene of terror and panic which leads us to expect this reassuring conclusion. I like that. God gives a word of reassurance. He's gonna deliver, you know. He's gonna save them out of exile. We need to cling to God's words. Let me move to the second element of future restoration. First of all, God simply promises it. As far as I'm concerned, if God says it, it's good as done. Number two, he's the agent of restoration. I like this, because you know what? We can't save ourselves. How many of y'all say that's so true? I can't save myself. I can't save my marriage. I can't save my body from deteriorating. I can't save myself from disease. I can't save uh, you know, I, my kids from doing the wrong things. We could just make a list of all the things we cannot do. It's a big list, but God can. God's a savior. He can do it. The effects of sin on our lives leave us destitute and defeated. It takes God's saving hands to lift us up and break us free from sin's bondage. And how many know sin is strong? It's got, you know, we get into sin and it traps us and pretty soon we're addicted. We can't get out. We're locked in. But God is able to do it. Look at verse eight. In that day declares the Lord Almighty, I'm gonna break the yoke off their necks and I'm gonna tear off their bounds. No longer will foreigners enslave them. God says, I'm going to free you. Aren't you glad God is a deliverer? You're my deliverer. We sing that. You're my deliverer. You're my savior. You're the one that saves us. Instead, they will serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Now, that latter part's a very interesting statement. I don't know if you know this, but after the captivity in exile, and they went back to the land, they never really had a king after that. It's true. They had leaders, but not a king. You know, Alan Dearborn says, Andrew Dearborn says it this way, since no king from David's line ruled Jacob in the post-exilic period, this hope finds its ultimate fulfillment in the New Testament proclamation that Jesus is David's greater son. Not in the leadership of a restored community in the Persian period. So what, what is he basically saying? He's saying this is fulfilled in the person of Jesus. This is fulfilled in the Messiah. Jesus is the king. He's coming. You know, he came to the land. They were all waiting for the king. They were all waiting for the Messiah. That's why they had this, this hope that the Romans would be thrown off because they knew they were going to get a, one day get a king. Philip Ryken writes it this way. Jeremiah's prophecy even seemed to hint that the coming king would be God himself. Do you know who Jesus is? God himself. You know, when this Savior comes, this Messiah, this King, then God's people will serve the Lord their God and David their King. Serving God and serving David are placed in parallel. To serve David is to be a servant of God and vice versa. It's easy to see how the coming of Jesus Christ makes sense of this verse. He's the promised Son of David. He's also the Son of God. He is God as well as man. Therefore, to serve Jesus is to serve God and vice versa. All this shows that Jeremiah was waiting for the Messiah. His hope is summarized in the words of a well-known Latin hymn from the 12th century. Listen to this one, you're gonna hear it. Just remind, this is gonna be a Christmas song. Listen, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. We sing that. What are we singing? We're singing Jeremiah 30. 
We're singing the promise of God. God says, I will come and I will ransom Israel that mourns in lowly exile here until the Son of God appear. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Did Jesus come to Israel? Of course he did. You know, the question is, does Jesus come to you and to me? Because when he comes into our lives, he changes the whole equation. He is the Savior. You know, it's so sad that so many people are trying to save themselves. It's a struggle. You know, there are people even trying to be Christians without Christ. It doesn't work. We need God to save us. God gives reassurances in their time of despair. Verse, 11, uh, verse 10 says, So do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, Israel, declares the Lord. I will surely save you out of a distant place. Your descendants from the land of their exile. Jacob will again have peace and security. No one will make him afraid. Hmm. Don't you, how many go, I like those words, peace, security, and a lack of fear. Anybody up for those three? How many say, I want peace in my life? I want security in my life. I want an absence of fear in my life. Wow, look at verse 11. I am with you. God says, I am with you, and I will save you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. You know, we have a whole theology out there today that almost says, listen, God's not gonna discipline anybody and you can get away with everything. That's a wrong understanding of grace, folks. Here we see God is gonna save their descendants. They're gonna spend 70 years in captivity. Here we learn something profound about God's love and his discipline. God's love does not allow us to have no consequences for our sinful actions. We need to know that. God is so good. If you and I sin, God will discipline us. It's going to happen. Count on it. You say, why does he do that? Because he's a parent. He's a father. Jesus says, you want to know who my father's like? You know, Jesus is revealing to us the Father. This is what Proverbs teaches us. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Actually, Hebrews 12 picks this up. He's quoting from Proverbs here. Do you know what? Listen to what that last says. God, when he disciplines you, it's because you're his child. Because you're the child he delights in. And he wants to make sure he's correcting you so you'll do good. You will have a good life as a result. You will change your bad behavior, which is about to destroy you. Goes on to uh, speak here, the severity of our condition. Here is what many people do not realize regarding the power of sin over a person's life. It entraps us to such a degree that we're unable to save ourselves. Though we are responsible for our actions, we need someone greater than ourselves to get us out of our mess because we can't do it. Listen to what Jeremiah describes it. This is what the Lord says. Your wound is incurable, your injury beyond healing. There is no one to plead your case, no remedy for your sore, no healing for you. All your allies, another translation says, all your lovers have forgotten you. All the alliances that they had made with the nations around them to rebel against Babylon, they care nothing for you. They forgot about you. Do you know I'm gonna say this to us? 
When we turn our back on God and serve other gods, we, we make ourselves in charge, we put other things ahead of God in our lives, they're gonna desert you in your hour of greatest need. They will. I have struck you as an enemy would and punished you as would the cruel because your guilt is so great and your sins so many. Why do you cry it out over your wound, your pain that has no cure? Because of your great guilt and many sins, I have done these things to you. So what is he saying? Your condition is incurable. No one can fix you. You know, this is what our culture does not want to hear today. Everybody wants to be told they're okay. I'm going to tell you right now, we're not okay. Our culture's sick. It's broken. It's unfixable by humanity. You see, what we have done as a society is dethrone God and put humanity in God's place, and we're living out the fruit of that. Instead of being wise, we've become foolish. We've become fools because we don't believe there's a God who we're accountable to. But I'm gonna say this to us to encourage us this morning. God is able to save us. God is able to save this culture. God is able to save us now. God is in our story. God is in this story. God is in this time. How do you know, Pastor? Because I've been around for a long time now and I was even alive during the great Jesus revolution. There's a movie out now. Remember back then, the hippies that were in rebellion against authority? You know, remember all of those guys, Woodstock and all of that stuff? But you know what God did? God broke in and God began to save the hippies. Woo! And it changed the whole course of history because a lot of those hippies became pastors. God began to call the broken and the forgotten and the dropped out people and the ones that were high on drugs. God rescued them and saved them and cured them. Hallelujah. And God will do that today. He's in the business, the same business of saving people today. And that's the hope that you and I have. You know, that which we put our trust in always fails us. Now, I was reading uh, a little clip from C.S. Lewis, a book entitled Letters to an American Lady, and he says, for it is dreadful truth that the state is, as you say, of having to depend solely on God is what we all dread the most. To have everything removed from us and have to trust God alone. That scares us. And of course, it just shows how very much, how almost exclusively we have been depending on things. But trouble goes so far back in our lives and is now so deeply ingrained, we will not turn to him as long as he leaves us anything else to turn to. So what's he saying? He's saying, you know, when we're in trouble, we turn to everything but God. We'll go everywhere there first, okay? I suppose all one can say is that it was bound to come. In the hour of death and the day of judgment, what else shall we have? And then he goes on to say, Perhaps when those moments come, they will feel happiest who have been forced, however unwittingly, to begin practicing it here on earth. It is good of him to force us, my dear, uh, but dear me, how hard to feel that it is good at the time. So what is he saying? He's saying, listen, when we get standing before Almighty God, all the things you depend on won't be there for your crutch. So if you have things removed from you in this life, you're learning an amazing lesson right now that you have nothing to depend on but God alone. But maybe if you can learn to do that now, when you stand before him later, it won't be so bad. 
Because that's what it all comes down to in the end. Well, let me move on to the third point. Outcome that God will bring about. I like this outcome. We're going to discover God's action on behalf of his exiles. And it speaks to us of God's deliverance for us in our sin, which is really an exile from God. Look at verse 16. But all who devour you, they're going to be devoured. All of your enemies, they're going to go into exile. Those who plundered you, they will be plundered. All who make spoil of you, I will despoil. What's God saying? All the nasty things people did to you when you were down, I'll deal with them later. It's going to happen to them. Verse 17, but I will restore to you health and I will heal your wounds. Remember the incurable wounds that could not be healed? God says, yeah, but I'm the impossible God. What humanity could not do, I can do. So when he was describing it earlier, he was saying, yeah, humanly speaking, that's true. All of those things are like that, but I'm God. And because you are called an outcast, Zion, from whom no one cares, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever. I love that. Now, think about that. This is, this is uh, Lamentations. Jeremiah is writing in Lamentations. He goes, no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. I love that. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. I love that. Isn't that beautiful? You say, well, then why do people have grief and affliction? A lot of times we do it to ourselves. But now listen to the promise. The ruins will be rebuilt. And here we have a list of the things that God is about to bring about. He goes on, verse 18. This is what the Lord said. I will restore the fortunes of Jacob's tents, and I will have compassions on their dwellings. I'm going to restore. Number one, I'm going to restore. Number two, the city will be rebuilt. Which city? Jerusalem. You say, why is that a big deal to the Jewish people? Because Jerusalem was the city that represented the presence of God. And that's where they had fellowship with God. What is he saying? I'm going to restore my union with you. I'm going to restore fellowship with you. I'm going to rebuild it on her ruins and the palace will stand in its proper place. From them will come songs of thanksgiving and the, song, the sound of rejoicing. I will add to their numbers and they will not be decreased. I will bring them honor and they will not be disdained or you know, looked down upon. He says, their children will be as in the days of old and their community will be established before me. I will punish all who oppress them. Their leader will be one of their own. Their ruler will rise from among them. I will bring them near and he will come close to me for who is he who will devote himself to be close to me, declares the Lord. So you will be my people and I will be your God. So I just wrote a little list of the things that God was about to bring it, about to, for them. He would renew a song of thanksgiving in their hearts. How many go, <clears throat> how many love it when you've had a night season and all you've done is cry? God brings restoration and he fills your heart. So all you can do is sing joy. Sing with joy. How many say, sign me up for a heart full of thanksgiving, that I'll just be so grateful and thankful and so overwhelmed with God's goodness, I'll be filled with joy. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, I love that. <clears throat> Their numbers would increase rather than be diminished by the ravages of war, famine, and plague. God says, I'm gonna remove all the things that's making you small and I'm gonna actually let you develop. I love that. That's God's favor and blessing. Number three thing he wrote, he will restore their honor. You know when things aren't going well for you, people look down on you. Isn't that funny? 
And you know, even if you don't deserve it, but when things are going well, people honor you. Isn't that crazy? That's just the nature of human beings. But God says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you honor rather than shame. That's what he's telling them. Number four, their children would be as in the days of old. In other words, they would have a life to grow up in. No longer would it be, you know, all of the destruction and devastation and un unnatural childhood. They would have a new sense of normalcy. How many appreciate that we're, our lives are moving back to normalcy? Isn't that beautiful? That's a gift from God. We take all, all that for granted. God says, I'm going to give you a new normalcy. Rather than have foreign leaders, a leadership would come from among them and be sympathetic toward the people. As a matter of fact, the people would draw near to God and so be restored in their relationship to God. Their leader would be one of their own, it says. And actually, I like what Old Testament scholar John Thompson says. He says here that their ruler would seem to be one with more than just political function, but he would bring people to God. And isn't that what Jesus does? This beautiful one that came, he's our mediator between the Father. He's the one that brings you and I into his presence. We know that after the exile, leaders like Nehemiah and Ezra rose to lead the people back into a relationship with God. But the ultimate one, of course, is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the chapter ends on a note of warning against uh, the nations. <clears throat> not, not to Israel, but to the nations that have been besieging, attacking, and God been using to discipline them. He says, see the storm of the Lord will burst out in wrath, a driving wind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. You know, I wish I could somehow convey this thought to you. We're gonna approach a day, and we don't hear this anymore, but divine judgment is coming to all the nations of the earth. That's what's gonna happen. And the only people that are gonna be spared are the people who know their God and who know the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes we get so indignant and frustrated by what's happening in our world, we get all upset and we're gonna do this and do that. You know what we should be doing? We should be preaching the gospel. You know why? Because people need to know Jesus. People need to come to faith in Christ so that their lives can be changed and they can be delivered from their bondage of sin, that Jesus could save them because, listen, we can't save ourselves. There's no human person that can save themselves. There's no nation that can save themselves apart from Christ. We should be more engaged in communicating the good news about Jesus than ever before in our lives because this is what's about to happen. God is about to break forth in judgment upon our entire world. And the only people that will be saved are those who know their God. Verse 24, the fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he fully accomplishes the purposes of his heart. In days to come, you'll understand this. Verses 23 and 24, as uh, R.K. Harrison says, he reminds the hearers that divine righteousness actuates. I looked up that word. It means to cause or motivate divine judgment. Why does God judge the world? See, we think, well, God's got a, he's got an angry issue. No, no, he doesn't. God is a righteous God. You know, we live in an unrighteous world. We live in a world full of injustice. You know, we may have laws, but they're humanly made. It's not divine justice, folks. God is gonna deal with all injustice in this world because he's a righteous God. He's a just God. And that's why there's gonna be judgment. And the only way we can be spared judgment is if you and I come to the cross of Jesus Christ where he took the judgment for us and we surrender our lives to him so that we can be delivered 
from our sin. You know, as I was thinking about this message this week, I was just thinking of all the things in our lives that we might be suffering with darkness, with hopelessness, with despair, with ashes, a season of ashes. What are some of those things? Sickness, sin, separation in relationships. You know, think about it. People need to be reconciled, restored to God with one another. People, you know, physically, there needs to be healing in physical bodies this morning. And there needs to be a reconciliation with our creator and our maker. And we're gonna stand as we close the service this morning. And I want you to know that if we will call out to him, if we will call out to him, he will save us. He will save us from our sin. He will save us from our sickness. He will save us from our separation in relationships because he's a savior. And with every head bowed this morning as we close the service in prayer, God has been speaking a word of hope to you. You're in an hour of darkness. You need to hear the voice of promise. God says, I can promise this to you and it'll happen. Maybe you're saying, you know, I've been struggling with areas in my life. Maybe sin has become such a, a, a tyrant in your life. Maybe there's bondage in your life. You can even be a believer and have succumbed to uh, addictions in your life. You know what Jesus wants to do today? He wants to set you free. He wants to set people free today. Isn't that beautiful? And maybe you're here today, that's you. God's speaking to your heart right now. He's saying, I wanna set you free today. Remember, today is the day of deliverance. Today is the day of salvation. Let's open our heart to him. Maybe you're here today and said, you know, I don't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior, but I want to. I can't have a right relationship to God on my own. I could try to be good, but I keep failing. It's going to happen, I guarantee you. You need Christ to come into your life. And he wants to. He wants to bring about a transformation in your life. Or maybe you're in a, in a relationship that you're struggling. God wants to bring healing on your side of the equation. I know it takes two to make relationships work. But God can do a work in you on your side of the equation that could actually alter that equation quite dramatically if you'll let him. So I'm gonna have people respond this morning. You're here this morning and let's just take the three things I've talked about. Maybe you wanna give your life to Christ today. You've never done that before. You know, John Newton grew up in a, a home that he knew about Christ, but he had never surrendered his life to him until he was in a crisis moment at sea. Maybe that's you today. Just raise your hand and say, I want to receive Christ today as my Savior. Or just keep it up. Keep your hand up, okay? It's great. Some people are responding today. It's very good. How about some of you say, I'm struggling with addictions. Just just be honest. Struggling with addictions. Just raise your hand. And say, you know what? I want to be free today. I cannot free myself from my addiction. Just raise your hand. That's you. Just raise your hand. I cannot do it on my own. I've tried. I've, I feel like I'm a failure. Yeah, God's, God's speaking to hearts this morning. Maybe you're here today and said, you know, it's, for me, pastor, it's relationship. I'm struggling. I'm drowning. It's not what it needs to be. It could be with my spouse, could be with my kids. You know, 
could be with my neighbor, my coworker, my boss. I don't know who it is, but God does. Just raise your hand and say, God, I need help. I need help in that relationship. Yeah, there's hands everywhere. It's good. We want to open our hearts to God. Lord, today, as we call out to you, you are the one who saves us. And I pray today that as, as I was sharing your word, a word that says, I want to restore. You are a re restoring God. You want us to restore us to yourself. You want to restore our relationships. You want to restore us to health, physical health. Maybe some of you, that's you. Just raise your hand. I need restoration in my body. I need restoration in my body. I want to receive from God. I need a miracle. I need a miracle in my life. And I'm just calling out to you today, Father, that you would hear my cry. Lord, so many people are responding this morning. Lord, you know every need in our heart. And we call out to you today. We ask you to save us. We ask you to heal us. We ask you to restore and reconcile us to you and others. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.